You're listening to Unexpected, the podcast bringing you real conversations from those of us who have suffered pregnancy and infant loss. With comfort and hope for the future, I'm your host, Ashley Bitterman. Today I'm talking to Erin, who reflects on the gender inequity when it comes to infertility and how the societal standards set for men need to be adjusted. Erin, I am beyond excited to be talking to you today. Everyone I have had the the chance to speak to so far has been female, and it's just as important to get a male's perspective on the issue of infertility and pregnancy loss. So uh, thank you so much for, for joining me. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. So before we dive in, we're going to start with one, two, three. So what is one thing you can't live without? two of your all-time favorite movies, and three celebrities you'd want to have dinner with. Oh, my. Um, <laughs> one thing I can't live without? Um, besides the obvious, like my partner, um, <laughs> let's say pizza. It would be a pretty joyless existence without pizza. Wow. Solid answer. As a... Yeah. Born and bred New Yorker, I would have to agree with you there. Yes, we were there a few years ago, and uh, yes, the pizza there is exceptional. So I'm very jealous. Uh, two movies. Uh, oh, that's tough. Let's go any of the Lord of the Rings. And I really, really like Garden State. Oh, yes. Yeah. Very indie and good music. Great film. Very good music, yes. And three celebrities I'd want to have dinner with. Oh, that's tough. Um, so Ryan Reynolds is hilarious and disgustingly charming. So I'm sure he would be great. Um, I really, really like um, Natalie Portman. I think that she's done some that's wonderful things there. with her. Yes, with her, with her platform. Um, and I don't know if this counts as celebrity necessarily, but I would say... Um, George Kittle, he's an NFL football player who plays on my, my team. And he is a very, very joyful, very exuberant man. I think he would be fun to spend a few hours with. Um, what team, what is your team? Uh, San Francisco 49ers. Okay, I apologize. I don't know all of the, the players. Um, oh, that's okay. Just a handful. <laughs> um, good, good eclectic mix there. <laughs> that would be fun. Yes, that, it's hard off the uh, off the hop. I had no preparation for that one. Yeah, <laughs> good choices, good choices. So, Aaron, tell me a little bit about you, your wife, how you met. Uh, so, we are a um, a Tinder success story. Nice. Yes, yes, we um, we matched. I suppose we'll call it in um, just over six years ago. Um, met, had a first date at a kind of pool place, um, ate a mountain of disgusting deep fried food and laughed and had great conversation. And second date was uh, equally wonderful. And I'm like, yeah, I think this is probably going to go somewhere. And lo and behold, it did. Uh, and so we, yeah, so we've been together for just over six years, um, got married summer 2020. Oh, yes, wow. A year and a half ago. Yeah. Um, and I'm 
Canadian. I don't know if people can hear from my accent or not. <laughs> I'm not a born and bred New Yorker. Uh, and I, I work in IT. I'm a project manager. Um, and uh, no kids, one dog, very small, very white, very fluffy. What kind? Um, got them from a rescue. So their best guess is Maltese Poodle. Oh, so, so cute. Oh, you don't even know. We've always, we've always said that if something were to happen, we had to get rid of him. Uh, we would probably have to hold a lottery because there'd be so many people who would want to take him off our hands that we wouldn't oh be able to just pick. So, oh my gosh, I can relate. I have a 15 year old Papillon and mm. she is 100% the number one thing I could not live without. Um, and she's going strong. So, yeah, so first that's good. I would all be very happy. He's almost 10 now. So, oh. They're the best, the best companions. Yes, he's, I'm a big fan. He is very cute and he unfortunately knows it, so. <laughs> they tend to. <laughs> when, uh, when did you first know you wanted to be a dad? Oh, I think I always just assumed that I would. Mm -hmm. um, I think that um, I've always by and large liked kids. Um, they seem to mostly like me, other than I'm fairly tall, and so sometimes they're scared of me. But other than that, they tend to like me. Um, yeah, all my aunts and uncles had kids. Many of my cousins had or were going to have kids. And I had never really entertained the thought of not, to be honest. It just kind of seemed natural that that's what I was going to do and never, never had any reason to think that I didn't want that. Yeah, it's just, that's the thing you do. Totally. Yeah, and, and some people aren't, you know, have no interest in that. And that's great for them, for us, um, one for me specifically. I just, it was the default and I had no reason not to want that. Yeah, so how long were you and your partner together before you decided to try getting pregnant? So my partner's actually known from a very young age that she would have trouble conceiving naturally. Okay. Um, yeah. So she knew that um, in her early twenties. Wow. So we, and she told me very, very early on in our relationship that that was a thing. Um, and so we, we pretty much knew that if we were to want to get pregnant, we'd likely have to go through some sort of fertility treatments. I see. So we had that expectation up front. Was, how naive were you to infertility before meeting your partner and hearing her story? Or, or was it something you worried about? Not even a little bit. Um, I, it really didn't occur to me that, and naively, as you say, that that could be a problem. Um, I just sort of, I knew that it came easier to some people than others, right? And some people, you know, they make eye contact with their partner and they get pregnant. And whereas other people, they, you know, have to have to work for it for a number of years. So I knew there was kind of that, that possibility, but it, typically when there's something negative or bad, it's something that happens to other people, right? You just sort of assume that it's not going to happen to you. It's going to happen to right. other people. And, and I knew I think I kind of knew like conceptually what IVF was. Mm -hmm. That was really about the extent of my understanding. I knew nothing about the process or what was involved. Or I knew that it 
involved, I think, sort of, you know, creating embryos um, and then implanting them in a person. Um, and I knew that it was expensive. That was about the extent of my, of my knowledge on the, on the process. I feel like that's, that's very common, even, you know, as a, a woman who is now going through IVF, this is, even as I'm going through it, I'm like, I had no idea it was like this, no idea. So it, for sure on your end or from a male's perspective, if you don't need to know, you just don't know. Yeah, that's that's just it. It's that I've I never had any reason to to learn about it other than kind of high level conceptual understanding, and so I didn't bother. It just wasn't something that was really on my radar. Yeah, of course. If you yeah, if you don't need to think about it, you don't. And the IVF process is daunting, and I think we both agree that the women or the person's body that's going through it gets the shitty end of the stick. There's just no way around that. Did you feel a sense of guilt while your wife was taking injections, going in for the infinite monitoring appointments? I mean, how did you deal with not being able to help as much as you can? And how did you show up for her? I think... I don't know, I don't know if I would use the word guilt per se, because, you know, you do understand that there are certain things you have no control over, right? It, it is not going to be my body that it's happening to, and there's nothing that I can do to change that truth, Yeah. right? And so I'm not going to, to feel, to feel guilt about the fact that something that is physiologically impossible, you know, is not happening. Um, I think it's where it comes in is more wondering what things you can do and trying to do those things. So like my, um, I don't know, one of my focal points is I have done every single injection, which at this point is well over a hundred, probably several hundred, just because it is one, you know, tangible thing that I can hold on to and say, this is something I am doing that helps beyond the, the moral support and being able to talk about it and things like that. Like here is something tangible that I can do that in general, people don't like sticking themselves with needles. Right. And so that's, that's one thing that I can do that helps. And that's something that I've been able to, to hold on to, even when she says, you know, it's fine. I can do it tonight. It's like, no, this is my job. This is something that I'm I'm going to do come hell or high water. Yeah, good for you. I I've done every injection myself, um, which is not fun, but good for you for volunteering for that that role. It is not an enjoyable one. Yeah, it's um, depending on where you are in the process. Um, some of the some of the needles are pretty big, <laughs> and one in particular and uh i yes it's it's easier i think if you're not not having to look at it while you're doing it if you can sort of distract yourself right so she can sort of you know look away or do something like that i think that makes it a little bit easier so it's that progesterone injection that needle is oh my lord the first time she says oh is that um 
she hadn't seen it yet. She's like, oh, how big's the needle? And I'm, I'm staring at this thing that looks like it's three feet long and about, you know, the size of my forearm. I'm like, oh, oh, it's not that big. It's fine. Right. And then after the injection, every day for the next few months. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. The biggest needle I've ever seen. I know it's nuts. And how, how do you feel like it's best to show up for her emotionally? Because yes, there's like the physical part of it, but you're also injecting yourself with hormones, which makes you emotional. Plus it's an emotional process. I think there's, there's different things. There's the, the showing up emotionally, I think is partly, um, being willing to talk about it. Um, I know that sometimes often, um, men are socialized to not be so good at talking about difficult topics or expressing sadness, stress, worry, any of those things. Um, so I think a willingness to, to show those emotions, have those conversations. Um, I think there's a little bit of pressure sometimes to be the strong one, mm -hmm. which I think you have to be careful with because, you know, obviously, if I'm feeling really upset about something, um, like, yeah, it's good for her to see that it makes me sad and, you know, maybe cry. If she were to come home and I'm sobbing every day for a week, then that probably does not help her stress level. So I think there's a bit of a balance there that you feel um, yeah. as the non-birthing partner. And then I think the other thing is, are there other things in our lives that that I can look after so she doesn't have to when we are going, when she's going through something challenging, right? Like um, being an equal partner when it comes to domestic labor around the house and emotional labor and things like that, I think are things that can help a lot. Yes, absolutely. And, and good for you to recognize that and where you can, can play a role because you, you don't wanna be so strong and stoic that it looks like you don't care, but you also don't want to be having to be taken care of in that moment. So it's a balance. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it is I want her to feel that she can talk about this and rely on me and I can be a source of reassurance, but not to such a degree that it seems like I don't care. Yeah, exactly. Because so the person going through it physically is obviously dealing with the physical aspects, but there's these emotional aspects because people that are resorting to IVF are doing just that. They're resorting to an exorbitantly expensive, painful, demanding process because they want so badly to have children and nature seems to have a vendetta against them. So you may not have been dealing with the physical aspects, but I'm sure you're feeling many of the emotional side effects too. Is this going to work? What if it doesn't work? You know, look, watching your, your, your partner going through this, how were your emotions affected? It changed, I think, as we went through the process. I think that when you first start out, we were, yeah, again, we were fortunate in that we knew kind of early on that fertility treatments were likely going to be in our future, right? So mm -hmm. we, we had that expectation going in, which I think was helpful. Um, and at the beginning, you're a little bit of trepidation, but I think by and large, you're, you know, you're trying to be optimistic, you're right, you're like, okay, here is something now that we can actually do to try and 
to try and get pregnant, to try and have a child, right? The natural part we know isn't working. So now there's something we can do. That's exciting. Yeah. Um, and usually it's exciting up until the point where the first thing goes wrong or doesn't work out like you expected. And that can be anything from, you know, you, um, her body isn't responding well to the hormone injections, to um, the, the retrieval looks like maybe it's not going to get that many, that many eggs. You may not end up with that many embryos. Maybe you have an expectation as to how many embryos you're going to get based on how many eggs that you had. And if that doesn't work, or doesn't go the way you thought, right? Um, typically, there's going to be something in the process that isn't going to be isn't going to go quite as as optimistically as you hoped it would. Um, unless you're extraordinarily lucky, in which case, great. But right. I think for most of us, there's something. Yes. Um, and so then that becomes a. Um, I mean, that can obviously be quite disappointing. Um, you have to start sometimes, even as you're going through the process, you have to sort of prime yourself for, okay, what happens if this doesn't work? Yeah. Right. Um, trying to balance the, the optimism and the hope with not wanting to be so hopeful that if it doesn't work, it just completely obliterates you, mm-hmm. which is, um, and so I started out really optimistic. Um, our first cycle, um, was canceled because they didn't uh, they didn't think they were going to get enough eggs to justify the cycle and so that was our first kind of jolt of oh okay this isn't just an automatic thing yeah right you don't you don't press the big button that says science and yeah. get a baby <laughs> right there's, pay your fee yes there's still a lot of um sort of luck to this and so we said okay and then the, the second cycle went much better and we've got quite a few embryos. Um, and then they transferred the first one and it didn't take. We're like, oh, okay. Um, and that, so again, then you start to think, okay, so there's a lot of luck here and there's little things that they can tweak, you know, nibbling at the edges of stuff that they can, they can try, right? But by and large, you're sort of, putting it in there and crossing your fingers and hoping for the best. Yeah. And, um, and then you, and so that part is a bit of a stealing yourself for potential disappointment. I think um, trying not to get too excited and too hopeful, I think, but at the same time, you want to let yourself have the opportunity to have hope oh. because if not, it can just be a really hard process. Yes, it's so it's such an accurate description of it. And talk me through. So you make the decision to do IVF, you, you start going through all the injections and you're planning and you're thinking, Oh, we have something to do, it's gonna work. And then you're told you don't even, you don't even get the chance, like, talk me through what that process was like, and, and how you recover from that. So much of this process, and I think of, of helping couples along, is expectation setting. And I think that, you know, if I was to be declared Lord Regent Emperor of Infertility, and I could talk to every single fertility clinic in the world and give them one piece of advice, it would be, as much as you're trying to 
make sure couples are hopeful and that's great. You need to set expectations about what may or may not happen, right? Like we didn't even know that it was possible that you wouldn't respond to the, that she wouldn't respond to the hormones and you're right. gonna have to cancel a cycle. Like just, we didn't even know that was a possibility. Had we known that we would have had different expectations going in, right? Yeah. Um, and so because we didn't know that, that was, um, it was disappointing. It was, it was worrying because you don't know whether or not there's anything they can do to change that. Like, okay, so this month, it's a, you know, an unsuccessful cycle. We're going to cancel it. Okay. So what's different next month or next time? Like, are there things that we can do, you know, that will help the odds? Luckily there were, you know, we didn't necessarily know that at the time. Right. right. And so there's a, you're sitting there in a lit with a lot of kind of uncertainty and thinking, okay, so what happens next? Like, mm -hmm. do we just do the exact same thing and hopefully it's better or, are there other meds and things they can give you? Like what? Right. It's like the definition of insanity is like doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And, and you're not given that, that expectation setting of, by the way, this might not work. And by the way, we might not even get to a retrieval. And by the way, another thing that I recently learned, I didn't even know was a thing is that when you go for the implantation, the embryo might not survive the thaw which is a thing, you know, there's mm -hmm. no, people are not prepared for this might not work. You're just given that, that hope, which you're, you're, you're right. It is important to give the hope, but it's also good to have the whole picture of setting expectations. So you're not just ready for a huge crash when it doesn't go the way you think it's going to go. Yeah. Like if, if they could give, you know, a a flow chart of every step in the process, and this is how it's supposed to work. And then underneath each say, these are things that could conceivably go wrong, right? Like I like to that to me would be tremendously helpful in terms of helping people realize what could happen. So at least none of it's a surprise. Like bad news is bad news. You're not gonna be happy. But if you at least know that it's a possibility when it happens, that to me is different than surprise bad news. Exactly. Right? Yes, exactly. And so you, go through this first round, you don't even get to a retrieval. And then you have a whole second round and your results are much, much improved and you get to try. And then the first one doesn't take. And then you do it again and it doesn't take. And it's just devastating. It truly feels like a punishment. And I'm sure you want to look for something or someone to blame at that moment, a reason to point to. So how do you come to accept the fact that it's just, it's not working? Um, so the second, so the second transfer we had, um, did very briefly take, we got a, so a positive pregnancy test, but it was a very, very low number suggesting that it probably was not going to be viable and lo and behold, it wasn't, um, that in a way was helpful just because it sort of showed that, okay, this, you know, this is possible, right? Yeah. Um, so that part was as much as it didn't work, that at least was sort of a, a little glimmer of, okay, this process of transferring an embryo into my wife's uterus can actually result in a pregnancy. Like right. that's cool. That's exciting. Right. Um, I don't know if blame necessarily came into it. I think that one thing that the, the medical establishment is really good at is sort of 
emphasizing anytime you look, you read up anything about like um, miscarriage and things like that, it always base, says variations on this is not your fault. In the vast majority of cases, this is, you know, genetic or chromosomal abnormalities and it was not going to work. And this is just, there is nothing you can do about this, right? Yeah. And so it's, it's reassuring in a way because you, you're not thinking, oh, we should have or could have done something different. Right. That part is nice. The flip side is then you're experiencing a tremendous degree of powerlessness mm-hmm. because there's something that you want to happen, but you cannot make it happen through sheer force of will right? You cannot hope this into existence. You are reliant on some combination of of luck and circumstance. And if you're a spiritual person, that might come into it. Um, But it's not something that you can control. And so you're sitting there just sort of, you know, please let this happen, but you can't (laughs) do anything. And of course, along with that, there are no shortage of people telling you things that you can do to potentially help this, right? Oh, you should eat this thing. You should do this, you know, medical treatment that may or may not have scientific legitimacy. You should, right. you know, like there's all of these things eat that people- pineapple. <laughs> yes, exactly. Eat pineapple to go to acupuncture, do all of these different yeah. things, right? And I mean, they, it's, it's hard because you- you want it to work and you're willing to do just about anything. And I've known women who are strident believers in the scientific method and, you know, a research-based evidence do all sorts of things that have really no evidence behind them whatsoever because, well, I just want this to work and, you know, and why not? Yes. Right. Yeah, of course. You you wrote and shared a very moving post that really gained a lot of traction about the moment you found out one of your transfers didn't take and how all you could do was hold your wife while she and you both just cried. What was going through your head at that moment? Um, So yeah, that was our third transfer. Um, and she had taken a home pregnancy test, uh, basically in the middle of the night before she went in for her, her blood work at the lab, um, for sort of the, the official formal pregnancy test. Um, and so I, I wrote about it. I found that to be cathartic. Um, and I talked earlier about letting yourself feel hope. And I think that is for me, that's probably the hardest, the hardest part of the process is that if you, the more hope you let yourself feel, the harder it is if it doesn't work. Yes. But the flip side is if you don't let yourself have the potential to feel hope, then it just, it robs you of what can be a very joyful experience. Like if you get a positive pregnancy test and the only thing you're thinking about is, um, oh, this might not work. We might lose this, something bad might happen. You are taking what should be a tremendously um, positive experience and it just becomes another source of stress and anxiety and worry. And so trying to figure out how you how you balance those two like how you let yourself 
have some hope, but still allow for the inevitability that that something may go wrong, mm -hmm. right? And so that was kind of that's really what I'm what I'm thinking is the you know we knew that we had more embryos at that point. We knew that we could still try again. Um, and so I'm sort of saying, okay, well, you know, all is not lost. There are still other things, but every time it doesn't work, um, it sort of, it hardens you in yeah. a way. I think that the next time you do it, you're a little bit less hopeful. Mm -hmm. You're a little bit less optimistic because I just, I, you, when it doesn't work enough times, like it, I, think I said, and what I wrote, like it costs you something, right? you you can't um you can't go through that and have something not work over and over again and just carry that same degree of optimism through the process like it's inevitably going to wear you down yes absolutely and you wrote something in there that really struck me struck me you said Daring to hope and face disappointment is far more difficult than letting yourself succumb to the inevitability of inevitability of disappointment. Beautifully said and terribly accurate. What how do you mean how do you keep the courage to hope? And is there a time when you believe enough is enough? Um I think that if you don't hope it's going to work, then why are you doing it? I think that you, you have to, um, believing it's not going to work and being very sad and disappointed is an emotional response, right? You have been disappointed several times and you let that little voice in your head go, oh, well, this is just never going to work, mm -hmm. right? But rationally, that I mean, it might not work, right? Absolutely. But, but like rationally, this is the best opportunity we have to get pregnant, right? This is the, the best of science and modern medicine coming together to do what should be physiologically impossible for a lot of people. Like the fact that this is even an option for us is yeah. brilliant, Maybe. right? Like there's so many of us would never even have the opportunity to get pregnant if it wasn't for this sort of thing. Yeah. And so I think reminding yourself that this is our best chance and this works for lots of people. It doesn't work for everyone, but it works for lots of people, right? That I think is a lot of where, where the hope comes from. It's just trying to have my rational brain, you know, <laughs> speak to that a little bit more negative heart at the time and say like this, you know, it, it's not guaranteed to work, but it might. And, and logically we know it might. And so don't, don't lose sight of that just because you're disappointed. Right. So um, true. And sorry, what was the second part of the, is there, is there a time when you believe enough is enough? Absolutely. Um, I think that, I mean, cost is certainly one aspect that often makes that decision for people, right? Um, exorbitantly expensive, as you said, um, time is another right? I don't want to be, um, you know, 65 and have a 15 year old. Yep. Um, I, part of it is sort of your own personal, 
guess I'll call it resolve for lack of a better term. How, how long are you willing to go through something that is challenging? Yeah. Um, and I think the part that, the part that hurts when I look at other people is how many people let fertility challenges become the dominant feature in their lives and their relationship, right? Mm -hmm. And I've, I've often said that I did not marry my partner in order to have children. I did not partner with her because I wanted to have kids. I partnered with her because I love her and we are, we do, you know, wonderful things together and enjoy each other's company and everything is better when she is there. And that's true regardless of whether or not we have kids, right? And I think that if you, the longer you, stre you stretch out that period where you're trying to get pregnant and going through fertility challenges, which are often a significant source of stress too, is it, is you're robbing yourself of that time as a couple that you can be doing other things, yeah. right? Like, like the opportunity cost there, right? And, and there's things that you, like, you know, if you get pregnant and have kids, there's things you can't do anymore. They're right there. I mean, right. it's inevitably change your life in yeah. numerable ways, many of them wonderful, yeah. but there's things you can't do anymore, right? And so um, trying to, to keep sight of those and, you know, here's things that we can do now as a childless couple that we cannot do or would not be able to do if we have children. Yes, you're so right. Uh, it has definitely been a dominant force in my marriage, my life over the last year, two years. Um, how has infertility and pregnancy loss affected your relationship with your, with your wife? Fortunately, less than you might expect. Um, I think the biggest thing is it, it forces you to think about what your life would be like if you never end up having kids. Mm -hmm. That I think is, is the biggest thing for me. And I think what I've, what I've come to realize, piggybacking off of that last point, I like my life right? I love my wife. I think that like, if my worst case scenario here is that my life stays exactly as it is now, that's not the worst thing in the world, Ugh. right? And, and I think sometimes it's, people can lose sight of that. And, and I hope that people that are going through fertility challenges have a relationship that if it were to not work out, there, there is enough there that they can still have a joyful, satisfying, rewarding life. And I think that that as, as we've gone through this and had, you know, a number of unsuccessful transfers and gone through and you had to start thinking about what if this doesn't work, I've come to realize that that's okay. Like the, the reason I'm with this person was not to make babies. <laughs> and that would be a wonderful, a wonderful benefit if we end up getting that, but it's not the sole reason that we partnered. And so I think that's where the fertility part came in. So in a way, it almost it almost strengthened kind of my resolve and realizing that I love this person enough that even if I don't have this thing that I always wanted and always thought I would, I will choose her over that. I would rather have a life without children with my wife than some hypothetical future with children with someone else. Mm. That's what that comes down to. 
such a beautiful outlook and terrific reminder, especially very raw for me as someone who's currently going through this and it has consumed my life. And it's, it's easy to lose sight of, but yeah, but you're right. Like my life's pretty good. And if it stayed this way, that'd be pretty great. Um, so beautifully said and uh, appreciate that outlook for sure. I, and it's, it's easier to, um, you know, when it's not raw, right? It's easier to have that kind of outlook. I get it. Sure. It's, it's hard. But a great reminder it. for someone who it is, who is going through this now and take a step back and be like, okay, wait, that's actually a, a very positive way of, of looking at this and, and a way to allow yourself to stay optimistic and stay hopeful, knowing that like the worst case scenario is my life is stays like this, mm -hmm. which is a yeah, beautiful reminder. So a pregnancy loss for a woman is one of the most devastating things she can ever go through, especially after trying and trying and going through IVF. It's just heartbreaking. That being said, you typically hear about these circumstances from the mother's point of view, but you want this just as much. Do you feel like men and the non-birthing partner, they're given an adequate space to feel the loss, to grieve, to reflect on what has happened and to speak up and talk about it. I mentioned earlier about kind of how we socialize men. And I think that this feeds into that a lot where anytime I have ever spoken publicly about fertility challenges, pregnancy loss, any of that, I've been inundated with kindness and support and, and love, and it's wonderful. Um, and from both men and women, but it's funny because I noticed that, like, for example, when I wrote this thread that you were you mentioned earlier, um, I, a ton of comments and people reaching out and things, um, most of the men who reached out did so privately, they weren't commenting on on it, right? Whereas um, women were more likely to, to comment and say things publicly. And I think that there is, um, you know, a lot of social pressures around stoicism and, you know, not showing um, weakness, sadness, you know, whatever that is. Um, and I think that, you know, when you, when me as a, um, a cis man, talks about this stuff, I think, and this is true of anyone, um, I think it, it normalizes it and makes it easier for, for other men to do the same, right? Like when no one, when something is, is affecting you and no one's talking about it, you assume you're the only one. And then yeah. when one, one other person talks about it, you think, oh, this person's like me. And then when a hundred other people talk about it, you think, oh, this is actually a little bit more common than I thought. And when 10,000 talk about it, you go, oh, geez, this is everywhere, right? Like every person that that shares their stories and talks about this contributes to that, that changing the narrative and changing what kind of conversations we normalize from, from whom. And I think that men have the space to do this provided they are willing to put themselves out there. Mm -hmm. And that I think is the challenge. I think um, there, there's probably the odd, you know, guy that would respond terribly to someone, their friend sharing something, but by and large, everyone's great. Um, but you have to be willing to put yourself out there. 
right? Yeah. And you have to be willing to push back against those kind of stereotypical standards of what constitutes masculinity. And I think that some men just aren't quite there. A lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, it is so wonderful that you've, that you're speaking up and trying to normalize the normal, which is what I always say. These are such normal circumstances. We just don't talk about them enough. So they're not normalized yet. And what do you make of the fact that when you share as a cis male, it's almost met with this, oh my gosh, like the, the guy is talking about it. It's so amazing that the guy is speaking up about it. I mean, what do you make of that? How long do you have? <laughs> <laughs> the, the bar for men in general, I think is quite low. I think that we, you know, we can get into conversations about patriarchal conditioning and everything else, but by and large, it's like a, a guy talking about anything that, that impacts, like that's, that's emotional or, you know, adversely impacts women more than men or like, you would not believe the stuff that I get praised for that is just the most basic run of the mill. Like this is not, not that impressive, right? I mean, it's, it's no different than the, the parenting stuff, right? Dad out at the supermarket with his, with his kid is the superhero, you know, and the, and the harried mom, you know, with three kids is holding up the line. Like it's, it's just yeah. the standard there is. Oh, it's so accurate. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. And I think it's, I don't know. I think we, we as men um, need to I think we, we need to be better. I think we need to um, be more open about a lot of things. Um, I think that we still see pregnancy and parenting um, as the domain of women. Um, and it, it lets men do less than our share. And I think that that places a burden on, on women that is a significant problem, both on an individual level and I think on a, at a population level. And so I think that just we need to do a better job of, of stepping up and talking about things that impact women and families and showing that these are not just, um, not just issues that women should care about. I mean, first of all, I appreciate you, you stepping up and coming out and saying this, but I also appreciate you recognizing that and acknowledging it, that there is an issue there and this inequity in the balance of the burden that the, the woman is taught to carry versus, versus the male in the relationship. And it's, we need to normalize that it's not just the, the, caretaking but it's also that when you experience loss and grief that that affects the the male in this in the relationship as well and that's overlooked and it's seen more as a as a female dominant issue so thank you for for speaking up and recognizing that we need we need more of you um 
But Aaron, you recently got some exciting news. So tell me about that. Uh, yes. Yeah. So the aforementioned thread that you referred to was our, our third embryo transfer that did not take. Uh, and so after three, um, three single embryo transfers, they, they finally said, okay, fine, you can try transferring two embryos and hopefully uh, one of them will take. And they both took. And we are currently, as of recording, just under 16 weeks pregnant with twins. Oh my goodness, twins! Which, yes, which is tremendously exciting and absolutely terrifying <laughs> yeah. and a whole bunch of other emotions. Wow, that is overwhelmingly exciting and probably really nerve-wracking. And especially after having recurrent loss, it's like, you know, every day I'm sure there's some nerves, but allowing yourself to keep that hope is, is really exciting. It's, you know, and it's funny because I, you know, we, we got the positive test and I was excited, um, but I'm sure not as excited as I would have been if we had never gone through this, right? Mm -hmm. Like you still, you still carry that with you a little bit. And especially in those early days, those, you know, week six, week eight, week 10, you're basically holding your breath, right? And just, you know, are we going to get, you know, is it everything going to be okay? You know, we're going to get that first ultrasound, you know, that first ultrasound that we had, I literally don't think I breathed for 15 minutes <laughs> until, until the tech turned on the TV and showed us what she could see. And all of a sudden then it was just like this, this huge weight and relief just, um, you know, kind of falls off you, but you still, you still carry that with you a little bit. And that's what I, I was talking about giving yourself space to hope because, like going through fertility stuff can rob you of a lot of joy mm -hmm. and things that should be joyful. And, you know, being pregnant is exciting. It is. And you, yeah, you're worried and you're stressed and you're afraid it might not work out, but there's, there's so much, so many wonderful things there that you have to give yourself the opportunity to, to experience. Yes. It's so true. And, and I know you talked about this before, but it's so accurate that you are just robbing yourself of the joy in life and, and being in the moment and it might not work and it might come with, with grief and suffering. But in that moment, giving yourself the space to feel what it is to find out you're pregnant and find out you're pregnant with twins. It's crazy. Oh my God. Yes. What, no. what was your reaction? <laughs> you and your wife's reaction when they said it worked. Oh, and there's two. <laughs> so we, we kind of had our um, kind of had a suspicion because um, she uh, she took a home test um, early, like several days before the um, the lab, the blood test, and it was positive. And we thought that's that's got to be a pretty high uh, beta HCG, right, um, is the hormone they're testing. That's got to be a pretty high beta to be positive like three or four days before. And then she got, um, she went and so for reference, I can't remember exactly what the reference range is, but they want at least 50, I want to say. Mm -hmm. um, and they say up to whatever, a few hundred. And so that first, the second transfer, which was not viable, I think she had five or something like that, which is technically a positive, but you know, probably not viable. This time it was 300 and something. Oh, wow. but, oh that's a pretty high number. And so instantly you start thinking, and then they want it to double every two days or three days, I can't remember. 
they send you back a couple of days later okay. and it had um like more than tripled Oh my God. And so we're like, okay. So even like before the ultrasound, we strongly suspected that they, they both might've took, but also didn't want to assume that because right. the last thing you want is to assume they both take, go to the ultrasound, find out you have one viable, um, you know, fetus and be disappointed. Yes. Right. So we're yeah. like, okay, let's right. Like what a, what a horrible thing that would be. After, yeah, right. you know. So we're like, okay, well, let's keep our expectations low and see. And then lo and behold, yes, there were, there were two. Wow. That's so exciting. Oh, I'm so is. happy for you. So is there anything else that you'd like to share as a soon to be dad who has <laughs> experienced loss and infertility and, uh, all the joys that come with that. Um, I don't know if I have much fatherly wisdom yet. I need to, need to brush up on my dad jokes. Um, <laughs> I, I guess all I would say is every time I talk about this, um, everyone is wonderful. They're kind, they're supportive. Um, they share their own stories. Um, you know, social media gets, gets a reputation as you know, being a pretty toxic place. And I'm convinced that infertility social media has got to be just like the, the shining beacon of, mm. of what people can be and what social media can give you. Um, I think that, you know, I, I get so much, um, I hear so much that, oh, it's so wonderful to hear, you know, uh, a man talking about this stuff. It's so, it's so unique. It's so rare. Like, I guess my message is it doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. Like, like, guys, you can talk about this stuff it's okay. You can talk about your feelings. Like, like my life is so much richer and more rewarding when I decided to stop giving a shit about whether or not the way that I, I conduct myself and talk is adhering to those rigid standards of what men are supposed to do. And, And this is one of those things where that letting yourself talk about this and share this and feel this helps other men do the same. And it feels, it doesn't have to be isolating. Like there are so many people going through, going through fertility challenges. And because no one talks about it, everyone feels like they're navigating this thing alone. Mm -hmm. And I'd say that's doubly so for men, because we especially don't talk about it. Yeah. But we can. And, And when we do, it just makes, it makes it better for everyone. Oh, you are so, so right there. And thank you for opening the valve and giving space for other people to join you. But thank you for being the one to set the example. And I, you know, you've been through a lot and I'm, I'm sorry for what you have to go through. It's just cruel and it's unfair, but I am very excited for you and can't wait to follow along your journey. I wish you all the best. And thanks so much for talking to me. It has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful. Thank you for listening to Unexpecting. Join our community by following us on Instagram at Unexpecting Podcast. If you'd like to share your story on our show, email us at unexpectingpodcast at gmail.com. You can support this podcast by visiting anchor.fm slash unexpecting. Be kind to yourself. Be patient. And remember, 
Today's teardrops are tomorrow's rainbows. Take care.